Welcome to episode 50 of the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with Brad Binkley. Hey, Brad, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I am great. I am overwhelmed with stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. So buckle what, your yeah. seat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I kind of want so, so, so many things. I absolutely have... A, a handful of essential what to watch out for's things that I just see coming. Can I rattle those off and then we can get into deeper topics? Cause I absolutely cannot risk not getting them out there. For the you record. better get them out for you. Explain. I gotta get them out. I can't stand it. I can't, I'm not going to be able to listen to anything you say, but I'll get my what to watch out for's out. So and tell me if you, if you've noticed any of these. All right. list. I don't know if it's in any kind of order, but. I think they're absolutely ramping up the black versus blue thing. The cop shooting, black people getting shot. I think for a while there, it's, and I think this other kind of parallel uh, deplorables versus snowflakes is still an ongoing, you know, a new civil unrest thing. You have the congressional baseball shooting where you have the kind of now deplorable on the left shooting at GOP guys. But I feel like there were three things that happened that were all on the CNN um, website today. One was a pregnant woman in Seattle, black woman, called the police for help and was shot. Yeah. Then this Philando Castile, like the the um, the cop shooting, the black versus blue thing that launched Facebook Live. You will remember right. that the cop was acquitted, and for some reason i didn't catch they released the entire video to the public today but, is this is from the milwaukee shooting that was minneapolis oh St. okay Paul. and then there was the milwaukee one that cop was also acquitted right i saw that, that silver smith from wisconsin and and the, that video was being played on cnn maybe i don't have the exact timing right but they were i read them all on cnn.com today <laughs> they, so, they just all of those stories on the same day. Yes, they just blurted out. So the cop acquittal thing would make people mad, and that was on the heels. I think the Philando Castile cop was acquitted a few days ago, but they released the video. Like first, what, that was a while ago. Why would they all of a sudden release the entire video? Oh, it was the dash cam video. Yeah, yeah. why would the state release the dash cam video that augments the Facebook Live video right when people are <laughs> – pissed again you know it just makes anyway so i think the black versus blue thing which i kind of thought was gone dormant uh in favor of the deplorables thing is coming back i that's number one what do you think yeah i think it's going to come back i think it's one of those issues that they use to it's one of those that they have in their pocket that they can always use to divide the public yeah, I didn't know if it was just like an Obama-era thing. I had, I had so much hope with Obama that he was going to at least do some uh, some redemption on the race issue for the people who really um, are saddened by it. And instead, it was the opposite. So I thought, well, maybe maybe that will recede with him. But then I saw that Eric Holder is considering running for president. And I thought, okay. Uh, that's obviously going to have some legs. I still think Elizabeth Warren is the heir apparent. What about Kasim uh, Reed? Kasim Reed could be there. I mean, I think they, they, 
I think he is a highly crafted personality. Like he's a, he's like an Obama type where they, they pick him out young. I think the Detroit mayor was one of those guys too, but he crashed and burned, but they do a lot of them in case somebody crashes and burns, they can trot out one of them from the wings. I think Kasim Reed's got some real legs. I think for him, I actually, but I, I, my ideas with him was not to be U S president. I think he's going to be the first kind of city president where this idea of strong cities, the UN strong cities and the and when Trump backed out of the Paris climate change thing, and then like sixty governors and mayors and stuff said they were going to do it anyway, yeah. that I think is a stepping stone towards negating the nation state in favor of world government, at least in the West, so that the cities report directly to the UN. And I feel like uh, that's his his role. Now, I don't think they're going to be independent. I think what happens is what regions are used for, what the nation is used for, what the UN is used for, what the strong cities programs, all that stuff is used for is first to normalize the laws and the rules. So I don't think we're going to have all these Petri dishes, incubators of best practices. I think first they're going to make us all these modular units with the same systems and then just plug them in directly to the UN so you have no layers to of recourse. That's just Absolutely. so I Yeah, I'm not even getting into that, but I just Kasim Reed somehow seems to really play into that. And didn't you send me an article? I didn't get to read it, but that yeah, he was I have the it most up. what is it? I have it up right now. He what is Mayor Reed and a Georgia judge are finalists for Government Secrecy Award. Two Georgia officials, including Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, have been named finalists for a dubious prize, being the most secretive person or agency in government. Uh-oh. I lost. Can you hear me? Now I do, yeah. Reed so- earned his nomination for a February document dump. Um, in regards to the Atlanta City bribery scandal. And this is an award that's given by the investigative reporters and editors in the of the application oh. judicial. Yeah, didn't oh, that happen the same week of the I-85, the suspicious I-85 collapse? Wasn't that when that bribery scandal was heating up and then it just I've, I just kind of receded into the background? Or am I... It said the maybe it said the document dump was in February, so March, I believe, the end of March is when yeah. the, the bridge. I feel collapsed. like it was getting airtime, and then it just disappeared from the airwaves when we had that series of bizarre <laughs> traffic yeah. events. It, it says that this award is given annually by the journal by the journalism organization to highlight the most outrageous at the most outrageous efforts to put a lid on public information. That's Kasim well, Reed. It's highly effective. <laughs> Highly effective. So, all right. So uh, can I move on to my next one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I noticed a couple of headlines that really looked different to me from previous headlines. One today was, it was a Fox News, the main page, the top headline. It was about the cops stabbed in an airport in Michigan. And And the headline read... FBI eyes terror motive in shooting. And I saw a similar headline during the congressional baseball practice shooting or stabbing or whatever it is during that shooting, that congressional baseball practice where they said FBI on the scene immediately takes over investigation, whatever. And I thought the FBI is getting 
is get it. So Mueller, right after 9-11, I think he was one of those guys who was appointed on September 10th or September 12th or whatever uh, in 2001. And he reshaped the FBI so that instead of being crime, it was like domestic crime. It was international counterterrorism, the FBI. So that's a, it was a very major shift. And I think we're about to have like a new kind of paradigm. Maybe the CIA goes backwards and the FBI takes a bigger role. I feel like the Comey thing, everything is setting the FBI up for something that a bigger role in, um, in law enforcement or in the terrorism or in the totalitarianism, I guess I would say. That was definitely Comey's, it, at least it, se- it seemed like Comey's entire purpose for that hearing is to defend the integrity of the FBI. Yes. And and just talk about, I noticed that Jeff Sessions, I think he said there were 35,000 people work for the FBI and report to him. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. 35,000 people. I, I don't know how many are in the Department of Justice overall, but that's a lot. Maybe it's not a lot. There's, say, 30, 30 huge, huge cities in this country, and say it's 1,000 each. Maybe it's not that much, but I, I don't know. 1,000 should be able to take on, uh, you know, in addition to all the other law enforcement you have. So I just feel like the FBI, we get ready for the what to watch out for. The FBI will have a larger, more prominent, more crafted role in this totalitarianism slash keeping us safe. That's number two. All right. And then my number three is an article that has two things, actually. There's an A and a B. It was about inmates killing uh, informants. So there's tons of articles, tons and tons. I actually wrote an article about it, about the prisons, what to watch out for. Prisons are, I don't know if they're going to get a lot of money or what, but there's just so many weird escapes and big news and guards getting killed. Big, big news. They, uh, The Trump administration announced that they were going to scrap what I think were never real plans in the first place, but scrap Obama's supposed plans to make prisons public again prisons are so corrupt those guys private prisons they bribe legislators and judges to make mandatory sentencing laws and to throw the book at people so that they can get money by incarcerating people i mean it's sick it's it's like stealing and killing at the same time it makes me want to puke so it's one place where this privatization thing is I'm not a fan of privatization, of private entities providing services that are only handed out by the government. Like, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't think the government should be responsible for anything. However, if the government is, if I were a minarchist, and I believe the government should be responsible for law enforcement, they need to do it because... And this is where people get to be like communists and socialists because they don't like profit, but that's not it. If they do it, themselves uh if you have private enterprise with a 100% government generated revenue it allows them to take monopoly profits because there's nobody going to compete with them for anything and then and it's really just a way to kind of launder this dirty money whereas if the government did it yes there would be corruption and all that kind of stuff too but people would have to actually smuggle it out of the system it would be illegal. I feel like 
this cronyism is just a, a, uh, a recipe for corruption. And anyway. Yeah. So, prison is, is a bad, uh, it's it's such you know anytime there's self interest involved and when people I think I don't know how people who run prisons I don't know what their mindset is like but I think I, if, I've I've really looked into it and I'm there is no doubt in my mind that this is what not I'm not saying people run it, I'm saying private enterprise is has really corrupted the prison system yeah yeah what I was saying was I I would think that because the general population there's a stigma to people who are in prison so there might be some sort of rationalization that goes on with people who run runs prisons about criminals that makes them you know feel okay about you know exploiting exploiting the prison system for profit yes and my problem is that so much of this stuff is drugs I think that, first of all, there are no crimes other than crimes against person and property, a victimless crime, a crime that's like a prohibited product or item should not be a crime. But if you are going to have those as crimes, these nonviolent, no victim crimes, they should never have jail time ever, ever, ever. You should not be able to forcibly incarcerate somebody for having an arm's length transaction for drugs or sex or whatever. Absolutely not. So maybe they think that. I would disagree with that from a moral perspective. But I will say in the 90s, there was that like big criminal criminal justice crackdown, whatever, on the federal level and incarceration rates went through the roof. And I'll tell you, I think gun ownership might also went up. I think gun laws were loosened up around this time. They were two parallel events. I, but I'll tell you, I think there is a chance that this massive incarceration rate is correlated to our plummeting crime. Our crime rate has plummeted. Are you aware of that? Over the past 20 years, the murder rate is like an all-time low. No, I wasn't. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Like, if you look at it, you wonder, what the heck? And I've wondered, and people are like, oh, yeah, it's because we took the lead paint out. Somebody said it's because we, now we have abortion and you kill the people who would be unwanted and bad. I mean, crazy theories have come out, wow. really offensive. And I am the last person to say high incarceration is I'm a hardcore libertarian. But you just have to, you know, regardless of the morality, the, it, it happens to be correlated. Is it causal? I don't know. But it's worth thinking about. Anyway, so I think the prison thing is a scam and it's going to get, and maybe, I don't know what, but watch out for big, some big prison thing coming down the road. But the, but part of this article today, which really scared me, was I had just written on the front page of the newspaper, this North Korean guy, prisoner or whatever, came home and died. And now Trump's like, oh. That's it. We got a new North Korea or whatever. Yeah. What's the full that, story behind that? I know the guy came home and he has a, what's his last he's name? Dead. Yeah. I know he's dead now. Uh, Willard. Was it William Murd? <laughs> I have he had a last name that, that I didn't I realize. Uh, you with me? Wombeer or something, right? Yeah. I got it somewhere. Ugh, I bought a New York Times today. I gotta sift through that nonsense. Hold on. What? What? Hold on. Hold on. Are you digging through your stack of New York Times cave that you have built in your office? 
Those are Wall Street journals. Um, oh, that's right. Uh, no, I, I bought a New York Times because I wanted to see how they were covering the handle Ossoff thing. But it's a win uh, for Democrats. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's funny. How can I not? Anyway, it would have been easier to use the supercomputer. <laughs> I don't even have the answer. Anyway, so this guy, he came home and he, I'm really stunned because I don't have it handy, but he, he died and supposedly because he was abused in North Korea or whatever. But I, when he came home, was he already yeah. in a vegetative state or did he fall into a yeah, vegetative he was, state? He was in a coma and, and here's the thing. So here's what, what, why, why I flagged it. It's like, actually what you're talking about. I, I said, it's like, this is not a very robust story. It's like not very fleshed out. It's just this guy. Whoop. That's it. That guy, something happens. Look at the picture. Right. Here we go. And I wrote in the margin, I said, when are they going to start anonymizing, you know, making anonymous victims? So then they can just roll out. They don't even have to tell a real story. They can just say, oh, 300 people died in this bombing and uh, we have to go to war. You know what I mean? So I was already seeing like if they 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 barely gave this guy a story, why even give him a name? Because then you could really research and see what the real story was with this guy. Maybe he had an illness already and, you know, maybe there's something more to it, but you could really research it because you knew his name. But so in this article of the prisons where it says that informants are being killed by inmates, it says, so we want to start like not revealing that, not letting people know who their accusers are. So you would actually not, you would not be able to face your accuser in a court of law. Which it says, oh, you know, some of those bleeding hearts defense attorneys well, I think this could be a civil rights problem. Like, yes, it could definitely be a civil rights <laughs> problem because that the whole thing is to protect you against political persecution. And if they just say, well, some guy said you're bad, <laughs> we're going to lock you up for 20 years. I mean, that can you could be you could target anyone for any reason. Right. Every accusation for, the Washington yes. Post makes could be, you know. Yeah. And then you couldn't even debunk that that person himself, you couldn't even mount a defense. So this is an attack on due process. That's super scary to me. And I am definitely flagging that as a what's watch out for. I hadn't heard it before, but when they start cracking down, I want more transparency, not less. I want, I don't, I think they should not do plea bargains. I think they should um, never give jail time for nonviolent offenses. And they should absolutely live stream every single jury trial, have a dedicated URL and everyone should be able to see everything, I, I, unless maybe it's a rape victim who wants privacy there. But I would but watch I just, that channel. That <laughs> oh my god! Like that's a great. It wouldn't be a channel; it'd be a thousand channels. It would be a thousand. Yeah. You know, room in the country you just have a, a live streaming URL unless you can get a court order to stop it. That way, I think, and anybody who's shot uh, to death in the commission of a crime, there should be that. There should be a posthumous trial. There should be a, you know, every single law enforcement should have a hearing on that. Should have to explain, you know, in open court why he did that. It should be scary for a cop to have to kill somebody. You know, they should really think twice about it because it's so easy if you know that person. I mean, they say, I've read crime stories where they're like, hey, there can't be a trial in this case, you know, and then the guy winds up dead. So, 
Yeah, that's the opposite of what they're creating, though. They don't they don't want that to happen. They want police officers to be on edge. They want the African-American yes. community to be on edge. And they yes. want when those two forces yes. come together, they want people to have, you know, to be anxious, to make it more likely that something bad's going to happen. Right. And I think transparency is a way to combat that. And this is the opposite of that, this, that this um, making think, witnesses anonymous, victims anonymous, all that stuff, anonymous, closed records. It's not cool. National security reasons. You can't talk about stuff. Not cool. So those are my three slash four. What to watch out for. All right. I'll keep my eyes open. Okay. Well, you said <laughs> you'll uh, watch out for those things. Yes, I will watch out for them personally. <laughs> okay, don't worry. I will remind you. You said something. <laughs> new example that made me think of how how many terror attacks have happened in the past, or, or potential terror attacks have happened in the past what week and a half, like four. All over the place because there was the Belgian thing, you know, outside of this country. I noticed they're starting to pop up again in this country, but they're domestic terrorists, right? Or homegrown. It's so. Anyway. I, I just mean any that I've heard. I've heard so many, I feel like, on the news over the course of the past couple of weeks. Yes. Oh, that, so we're headed into a period of tension. You know what it might be building up to? What? What Theresa May called for the international regulation of the internet from a content oh, yeah. point of view. Like that's we never we've never talked about that in this country like that. Like what she's right. calling for is radical. Well, what I, what I was saying, I, I I agree with that. What I was saying that I was relating it back to what you said about not even giving the victim of something a name or you know enough yeah. information for people to research. It's to me this is just it's a de- complete desensitization, kind of like the vulgarity stuff from last week. Yeah. Is if you know you just keep putting these terror attacks in front of people, and we keep seeing them. It's just, it becomes an everyday occurrence, and we're not affected by them. Which to me makes me think they're going to start to happen more and more closer to home. I notice. I have noticed that. I used to think they wanted to make the most of every event, and then I realized they actually do not. They just kind of overwhelm you with a cascade of events. And one small part of that, I think, maybe a big part, but was was something I observed reading that book, the report from Iron Mountain, where they talked about they would run computer models to see uh, cause and effect on events, like how many people it would take to get hurt or die or whatever to change the policy attitude of the people towards a policy they did not previously want. And I started to realize that it's, it, it can actually be more, it might actually be more quantitative than qualitative. So the intensity of the emotion, they only need that once in a while. And then they just, if they can rack up the numbers, well, there are 15 attacks like this happened this year, you know, 15, it's one in every city of this country, you know, like that kind of thing, that these are just to rack up the numbers. Yeah. And to keep it fresh on people's minds. Ah, yes, I agree with that. And what happens is this is what, and they actually say this, like, this is what they, people say this to me. It's so predictable. They say, oh, enough is enough. That's it. Enough is enough. So I was talking, I mentioned this before, I was talking to a European friend about Syria. I was like, why do we have to go to war Syria? Oh, well, we've had enough of that. We need to just wipe Syria off the map. I was like, (laughs) no, no, that's why they're doing that. If you just said, I will never advocate wiping Syria off the map, 
these guys would stop shipping them in. Although no, I read a, we just yeah. need to get rid of Syria completely. Yeah, so it's no problem for whatever dinner. Just drop a <laughs> like nuke a, on Syria and get it over luxury. with. They like their luxuries over there. But I read a scary article that said, suggested, I have no idea if it's true or not, but it was an idea that I thought might bear uh, just thinking about going forward, is that Germany is very industrial. And I've, I have noticed that industrialists like low wages, go figure, so they actually, even though they come off as Republicans and conservatives and stuff, a lot of times the guys behind the scene, the money guys, want immigration, want a lot of cheap, uneducated immigrants to come in and lower the wages. And I read that German industrialists pressured, bribed, whatever, Merkel to uh, bring in those young, poor men. You know, so they always say, like, 18 to 24-year-old men are just swan- – why is she only taking those if they want to – did you want people to get blown up? And I was thinking, oh, th- this idea was that they he was they were pressuring her to let them in for for laborers. Now I don't know if the stats bear that out. If they actually do go and work, uh, or what's the story? But um, I think that's something worth worth observing going forward. Potentially, I have a clip that goes with what you're saying about Syria. Oh, if good. You'd like Let's to hear it. it from. Yes, I would like to hear. It. How do you say this guy's name? The guy who's on Fox all the time. Uh, hold on a second. Krauthammer. Is that how you say his name? Charles Krauthammer? I think it's Krauthammer. Charles Krauthammer. Kraut- no, Kraut- maybe. Krauthammer. Yeah, it's close. Definitely close all to right. Hammer. This is about a two Kraut- and a half Hammer. minute clip, and it's talking about – I think the context is pretty good. And it, it, it's Tucker Carlson basically asking this guy – you know, what's going on with Syria? I thought it was about ISIS, but then we just bombed this plane. I think it was one of Assad's oh, planes yes, or something. Oh, yes, we shot a couple of – a drone and a plane of the Syrian government. I mean this right. is – So he's explaining Syria to Tucker Carlson, which I know you love both of these guys very much. <laughs> I didn't want to ruin the mood by telling you how, <laughs> how hard it's going to be for me to sit through this, but I'm going to. All right, here it is. Charles, I'm I'm legitimately confused. I thought that our main opponent there and everywhere was the Sunni extremist organization ISIS, and now I pick up the paper and see that we're shooting planes down from a government that is also fighting ISIS, that is representing the Shiites. And I, so is the main threat in Syria the Assad regime, or is it ISIS? Sincerely, I don't know. Well, here, this is like the last year of the Second World War. We're all fighting the Nazis, but we know they're finished. And a lot of the maneuvering in that last year was between us and the Soviet side for what it would look like after the Nazis were finished. Right now, ISIS, which is the main enemy, is about to be driven out of Mosul, which will mean that Iraq has been cleared of them. And what's going on now is the encircling of Raqqa, their last stronghold, their base in Syria. Within six months, probably a year, both of them will be gone. And everybody knows that. So what's going on right now in Syria is the maneuvering. The Iranians want to inherit the territory that's going to be lost by ISIS. And they showed that by launching rockets today over Iraq into Syria, ostensibly at ISIS as retaliation for the terror attacks but really a demonstration to Saudi Arabia, the Sunni Arabs, and everybody in the region of their reach. 
The Iranian objective is to have to inherit the territory of ISIS, which gives them control of the entire northern part of the Middle East, from Iran through Iraq through Syria to the Mediterranean. The Persians have not had that in 2,000 years, and it is within their grasp. So the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrian regime are all on one side, and the maneuver is to make sure they get the territory that ISIS loses. Our interest is to make sure that doesn't happen. That's why we attack the forces of Assad, who are hitting our allies on the ground, who are the Kurds, and there are these Syrian rebels, who together with the Kurds are closing in on Raqqa. Our objective, you were asking earlier, what's our objective in the region? It is simple. We don't want to see Assad have a puppet regime which will be run by Iran and Russia in control of all of Syria. We don't want them to inherit the ISIS territory. We would like to see that held by pro-Western, pro-Saudi, Sunni forces. So it's not about ISIS really at all, is what he's... Oh, um, gosh, can I please respond to that? Yes, I knew you would have something to say. Uh, I'm like throwing up in my mouth. <laughs> I I don't like to get into Israel stuff. I really don't. It's very emotional. People are upset. People, I, I grew up in New York. It's, it's terrifying to Jewish people to think about um, anti-Semitism in the world. They feel like Israel is, uh, they need to have that. So there's a place to go or that, you know, it's just, it's a very emotional issue. And then you have like the left gets uh, emotional about the Palestinians. There's the boycott thing, whatever. I don't like to get into it. There are a lot of people on both sides fighting that fight. But there is a right wing faction in Israel that is running the country right now. And uh, they, I believe they're responsible for numerous documents over the decades from Oded Yinan in the 80s a clean break in the 90s. I've read numerous things about the Six-Day War, a parallel between Six-Day War, which brought in this idea of preemption that you could start a war and blame it on the on the side that did not start the war. All of these documents and other uh, writings you show Syria specifically as a target. So in, I think Oded Yinan's plan was to Lebanonize it or Balkanize or whatever they call it, where they break it up into pieces. Uh, clean break, I think, was the one that introduced this idea of preemption. We can start shooting missiles into Syria. Uh, we've got a problem with Syria because of Gaza, whatever. I mean, whatever their territorial disputes are, this, I, I think this is more, you know, on the, on the one hand about that. So when you bring Iran in and say, we just want to make sure Iran doesn't have this reach. Well, you have this history where Syria, which was pretty independent, like they called Assad, the father, bloody Assad, but that was because he put down a Muslim brotherhood uprising that was trying to take over the country out of Homs in, in 1984. So things were very hot back then. And when you, uh, and recently, the catalyst for the Syrian thing what was not necessarily Israel. It, it from a big part of it was that they were going to cooperate with Iran and Russia to bring gas up from the gas field that Qatar and Iran share through Turkey into Europe. Gas into Europe is important. It's what Syria is about, and it's what Ukraine is about. 
So when Syria and Ukraine went with Russia, they both got blown up. You know, they had to undergo regime change orchestrated by the West. So as so the Syrian thing where uh, in in order. So a lot of the so-called civil war in Syria was really agents, provocateur and mercenaries, largely from Saudi Arabia, gone in there to kind of try to blow that country up the way they did in Libya. And it was a lot easier in Libya. But. uh the so that was a, so that wasn't even that effective they and what they did was i remember when islamic state popped up in iraq against the yazidis on father's day a couple of years ago and i immediately pegged it as oh that's the back door to syria they're going to use this as an excuse to go into syria and several years later a document from 2012 which was prior to that uh the defense intelligence agency that Mike Flynn was running at the time said, we would love an Islamic state and a Salafist principality to pop up on the border of Iraq and Syria to give us an excuse to invade Syria and unseat Assad, which is exactly what Saudi Arabia wanted. So it's just reminds me so much of Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a socialist, secular country in the seventies. It had a secular socialist government, no religion, nothing, but they were allied with Russia, which is near them. And Zbigniew Brzezinski, the national security advisor for uh, Carter, and maybe even Charlie Wilson was in on it at the time, Charlie Wilson's war, they went in and prompted by radicalizing Islam there with Osama bin Laden or his uh, Afghans or whatever, uh, they provoked the Soviet Union to enter to save that government that they were allied with. And then we say that we were there to respond, that we created the Mujahideen to respond to the Russian invasion. No, we created it to provoke the Russian invasion. And then the narrative ever after has been that we were were batting against this uh, aggression from Soviet Union. I feel like it's the same thing with Syria for different reasons, whether it's Israel's um, plan to uh, deal with its territorial disputes or um, Saudi Arabia's interest in being the regional hegemon uh, in competition with Iran, or it's the gas that comes out of the Qatar-Iranian gas field up through Syria to Europe. Whatever it is, I would say every step of the way, the West provoked and enabled, if not downright created, ISIS, the unrest, the civil war, all of it. And, uh, And you could... So to present it like Iran or Russia or whatever is super aggressive like that, is provoking all this stuff. It's really the West that has these these ambitions. Is that uh, is that A, <laughs> too much to absorb? Or B, I don't think it's any more than Charles Krauthammer gave you. And or C, like, is it too too disturbing for people to hear that? I, I really I hate to go down that road because people get super worked up about it. But that is my understanding of how of of the kind of broad brushstrokes in counterpoise what this guy was saying. I don't think it's any heavier than what Krauthammer was saying. And, and it's true that that's how I mean, this that's a totally right up, uh, you know, Bernays engineering of consent alley is you you always provoke so that it looks like the other person strikes first so that you're justified. You can justify to your public what you're doing. So that falls in line with the, you know, give the public a yeah. reason to accept whatever 
war that you have actually provoked. They just don't realize it. And it, it just, to me, it, it, you know, what you said and what he said, it's just, they're tell the general public is told that the, the, the simple answer about what's going on in Syria is that we're, you know, trying to take out ISIS. But here's the thing. So there's two things. One is, this is why it makes me absolutely sick. People ask me what I think of the mainstream media and the mainstream media provides a lot of facts. So if Trump sets the stage for, and and this congressional baseball thing shuts down the government so that we can no longer have access to government and information and can't use the mainstream media, that will not be better. However, there is this the real purpose of the media, maybe it's 20% of the content, but it's 100% of its purpose, is this propagandizing us, and it's atrocity propaganda, and it's this, it's this, there's, the, the facts are right in the media a lot of times, but when it comes to this stuff, it's really not, and it, and that's the stuff we cannot verify. The stuff that we can verify, I think the, the spin is awful, but a lot of the facts, you know, most of the facts are correct, Whereas this stuff, you have no access. They've closed down their news bureaus over there. So even the news people who are writing the articles don't even know that what they're getting is highly filtered, um, crafted stuff. Even the military guys over there, I think, are highly insulated in what they understand. And my my approach and recommendation, I, I hope I'm wrong about all of it. I want to just wrap myself in a flag and say, I am so glad. I would never say my country right or wrong, but I would like to say my country is always right, that we really care about justice. We do not steal. We do not kill. That is what we live by. I would like to believe that, and I hope someone can convince me. But but my method is I go and I, I read it all. I try to get international news. I see what narratives hold together. I try to figure out what the evidence is. I really individually scrutinize uh, source after source to see if they're disinfo, total BS, stupid, wrong, you know, government related, whatever it is. What makes sense? What's the history? I think you can arrive at a conclusion that makes sense if you're willing to do the work and not have it spoon fed to you on Fox. No, while you're having a beer, I love to watch TV and have a beer, but I can't watch that stuff anymore. Well, I don't drink beer too much, but um, I don't watch that stuff. I, I, I can't, I only watch it to see what he is saying, not to, to figure out the answer. You know, I want to know what the propaganda is. Yeah. So I, I think the truth I'm saying, I think, I really urge people not to take my narrative as truth and don't take his narrative as truth. Really, you must figure it out. And and by all means, if you think you cannot figure it out, that's completely 100% fine. But in that case, you simply cannot consent to military action. If you can't be sure that you're not killing innocent people, you cannot consent to it from a moral point of view. In right. my opinion, I'm not trying to preach. I'm just saying that's, I really feel like that is the bottom line. It's like, I don't need you to know. I don't need you to understand. I don't need you to understand because I'm not telling you to kill anybody. He needs you to believe his story because he is trying to tell people to kill each other. And Tucker Carlson's dad, I think, was a bigwig in USIA, which is what Clapper wants, the USIA on steroids, which yeah. is this counter-propaganda stuff that is supposed to, that was designed to, undermined Soviet influence abroad. Tucker Carlson's dad, I believe, was a big shot there. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That falls in line with what I talk about this book all the time. 
um, public public opinion, Walter Lippmann. I mean, he talks about in that book that the the leaders of the rank and file and the you know the leaders of the government they just they keep the they keep the public they keep their attention away and they keep them divided by throwing domestic issues that that affect them you know that they can feel the effects of and having them just meddle over those things while they keep them as far away from foreign policy as possible and they just yes. spoon feed them simple answers yes. because they don't they don't want the public thinking about the complexities of the foreign policy they want them and accepted. Urban, yeah. Irving Crystal said that the American people he was a big time neoconservative. The Ameri- and his son is the head of the Weekly Standard, I think, and he writes for National Review. I mean, he's also a big propagandist out there. But this guy said that uh, the American people, he urged Republicans, he said the American people must be led when it comes to foreign policy. And, and then he says in parentheses also economics. He said, but the job of the ruling class is to guide them and shape their opinions. I mean, if that's what democracy, you know, the democratic republic has come down to, I mean, that's really, that's just a manipulation. That's we what Bernays says. That's, that's yeah. Bernays' theory pretty much regurgitated that, um, I mean, yeah. Bernays writes books about that specific thing, how the, the intelligent few who are able to step outside of their, their, you know, their group think, the individual group that has the most influences over them and can look at everything who are smart enough to be able to look at everything reasonably instead of emotionally, they should work behind the scenes to form opinion or to, you know, tell people what to do. Well, it makes me wonder if you like peel that onion, that, that, that foreign policy stuff is purely it's imperialism and, so when Crystal said he was shocked, he was shocked to be in this community of lawmakers and have them actually caring what the people thought. He's like, what? Are you stupid? That's not what democracy is. about. He didn't say it like this, but like, I'm just peeling the onion saying what he's actually demonstrating to me is the, is the, I mean, and I think this, it has become this. I don't know if it was always meant to be this, but that democracy is truly a way to get people to consent to even more taxes, even more imperialism that they would never consent to if they were subjects to a king. They would never give half their money for this king's greater glory to take over the world. I mean, maybe they would, but it might be a harder sell than to think that it's their choice. You know, it's just a way that it's a, it's just a manipulation to get you to believe you have consented. And, and I mean, free will, you, you must consent, but the responsibility to fight against your own government, I think is almost beyond what can be expected. You know, I mean, that to have a pathocracy who you have consented to because you think it's an actual government with, you know, that, that is a community of people who have pooled their right to self-defense for a more efficient and secure system. And it ends up that's being used against them. Most people just don't have the the time or the cynicism to look at it that way. I think it's, I, I do think it's bad. I don't, I don't think that we're just fools. I think it's just so manipulative that people are not ready for it. It's totally manipulative. It's totally manipulative. And they've been studying Bernays talks about in his books all the time. He talks about the 
public relations council, which is propagandist, or he even says propagandist, he uses the terms interchangeably, they rely on their in-depth study and knowledge of individual and group psychology. On And he even lists off what propagandists, what they should study, what like the ideal propagandist should have a in-depth field of knowledge in. It's like social psychology, it's sociology, it's history. And they use our tax dollars. I hate research money because they use our tax dollars for the stuff out and they don't tell us it and they use it against us and they invade our actual minds, the fiber of our souls. Yeah, and that and the problem is that every we all think that we're immune to it because it's it's natural. It's it's a blind spot bias that we have, and they intentionally make people believe that that propaganda is just some simple thing that only the other guy is going to be under the influence of. Like people on the left think that only people on the right are they're just drunk off of Trump propaganda. People on the right think that people it's just people on the left who are just drunk off. Uh, Clinton or whoever, the resistance propaganda. But in reality, it's not the opposition's propaganda that we're most uh, you know, vulnerable to. It's the propaganda of the groups that we identify with who we don't expect to propagandize us because they say things that – you know, they, they connect with us. And, and when they say those truths or they get us over, they win us over emotionally, we let our critical guard down and they can slip in lies or, or manipulations in between the, uh, what's the X-Files quote is, the best way to tell lies is uh, in between two truths. Use yes. that theory from people we don't, you know, we don't, we're well, not, we're not looking out for. Yeah, go ahead. I, the... I have observed for a while, I think some of the stuff that we do plays into Putin's narrative for his own people. Yeah. So, and, and I think those people who grew up under communism and knew that the media could not be trusted was simply an arm of the government, which it was. People in England don't think of the BBC as having been created by the War Department and still owned by the government. They don't think of it as a, as a, as a, as a war, war propaganda tool, but it is exactly the same as like Pravda and stuff. They, they say it's not because it's, you know, it's not, but it is. But the Russian people, I think, are more skeptical. Now, when I look at, and so our people are very, very vulnerable because we have this history, I think, uh, you know, I assume it was sincere. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt, a sincere history of the open press. But I look at this fake news thing that they're coming down with and, and over and over and over people talk about Yates, Clapper, um, I don't know if it was Comey, but many people have come from official channels saying most important thing, oh, Vern Jordan, is that we have to uh, we have to set up these these screens that tell people what's real or not. And I have this theory about truth and advertising laws. You know, there are truth and advertising laws, right? You can't lie. Yeah. You know what that does? It allows advertising to work because it guarantees to the people these are not hucksters they would it would not be on your screen if they were hucksters we've taken care of that for you whereas if they didn't have truth in advertising laws advertising would not work because it would all it would be so infiltrated with bull that people just would never believe i never believe it i never click on ads i never think about ads i never believe any of it yeah, me either. It's and what you just said is exactly right. It also enables, in fact, it it, it forces people to or businesses and politicians and and Ossoff was totally. This is why I I I grew to dislike him strongly because of this 
the way that he continued to propagate this lie, but it enables them to do the worst kind of lie, which is the lie by omission. By When you phrase something in a certain way that you know how the audience is going to perceive it, it's just, it's just as bad as telling them a direct lie, but you don't actually have to say the lie. So that enables you to say, no, I didn't lie. How am I supposed to know how they're going to interpret it? And for Ossoff, and all politicians do this, but like you said, because of these advertising laws, they can, it forces them to do this, and it makes the public even more so ready to accept it. And they can also defend themselves by saying they never lied. Media does it all the time, but Ossoff's lie was the one about where he phrased the, the thing about his foreign his not his foreign policy is five years. I worked five years as a congressional staffer. I was I earned uh, top level security clearance, and then he stops his sentence there. So people who right. like him are going to their brain is going to create a narrative. That's how our brains work. They don't leave it. They don't leave the story untold. So their brain says, "Oh, he was he had top level clearance for five years." That's, <laughs> yes. that's an impression. Yes. When in reality, he got national security clearance because. His the guy he was working for, Hank Johnson, needed him in there so he could take notes for him. He, that's how he earned his top security clearance, and he had it for six months. And Hank, <laughs> right? And he was asked about this over and over again. And this was this is what makes me think the people who were asking him questions they were either they were told that they weren't allowed to cross a certain line. Or they just themselves weren't going to because yes, they, they would yes. say there's been some confusion on your national security thing. Did you exaggerate these claims? And Ossoff would say, no, I never exaggerated those claims. I had I worked as a congressional staffer for five years and I earned top security clearance. So he never actually clarified. He still says the same thing. I do wonder who keeps them, who keeps reporters from digging in. I know in yeah, my experience I, that – that I am discouraged. I, I wasn't past. I've completely <laughs> blown past anybody who thought they had to protect me from myself and like trying to get a, a just when people would tell me, I've mentioned it before, where people would say, don't say that. It makes you sound crazy. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I'm saying it. And it, it's okay. But, but other people will tell you not to do it. But there was one thing that I heard this, uh, Atwill, Joe Atwill, I think his name is mentioned. I had not heard this before that Donald Trump's uncle, Dr. John Trump, was an MIT professor for 40 years. He worked for the National Defense Resource Board or something. He was that director of microwave. I don't know what, but he was the guy who beat Tesla's nephew to Deathla when Tesla died, Nikola Tesla died. Within within several hours, I think it was before the nephew could get to his uh, where he died. Doctor John Trump came in, got Tesla's papers, and the nephew never saw them again. So he, I think, he was working for the government at the time. That is some deep That's state crazy. military really complex stuff. And Tesla, he was the guy who supposedly was kind of sequestered in a hotel room by the Rockefellers for. Uh, cracking the code on free energy. Now that is controversial. Some people say that Russia tried to do it and couldn't figure it out or whatever, but that guy's papers are the, the probably the most earth shattering change in, uh, in, you know, would change the world. And here, now that I'm thinking about it, I actually read something about Dr. John Trump that was unrelated to the Tesla thing. It was in his wiki entry. I don't think it says anything about Tesla in his wiki entry. And it says that he um, invented or had access to the death ray 
But didn't Tesla invent the death ray? That's the story, yeah, that he... Yes, yeah, so look at ray. Dr. John. I'll write it in the... Um, That's really interesting. I'll put his in the show notes. I'll put his wiki entry. And if it says that thing about the death ray, that's funny because, I mean, maybe it clicks through, but I don't think it mentioned Tesla. Anyway, I'm just saying, why would, it's so interesting to me, really fascinating, but why, why, I mean, Jeff Zucker, those guys are not fools. The the Democrats are not fools. They're not clowns. If, I mean, I, I, that information is out there. It was on an NPR. I think I saw it in an NPR article from some years ago. So the information is absolutely out there and nobody ever brought it up why wouldn't someone write an article for the atlantic that said he's not an insider this was his father's connections to government his uncle's connections to government his sister's connections to government he's not an outsider this is his connection to the rothschilds it's his connection to Soros. you know what i'm saying yeah i do know what you're saying who told him not to do that right yeah yeah who told him not to do that i I also think it plays into what you were saying, what, what we talked about last show, where it, it's regardless of who the candidate is, they're going to be categorized as that hated stereotype because that's a simple way to create that rage, that mass rage anyway. I know, but they could have defeated him from the inside. Like, like why didn't Handel go after, after Ossoff with – Stuff about he he talks about your taxes. His dad has a tax company. He talks about creating jobs that was in England. He, you know what I mean? Like, why didn't she? I don't did did I miss something? Did she? You know, go no, after him she didn't go after him about any of that stuff. I think probably because there's some of the same connections there. I, I think I, I well, think if you look deep I enough, they're going to be tied together. And if she outs him, she's going to be outing herself. That's why Garland says, Garland Favreto, the voter GA guy, says they never, they don't truly out the actual problems with the voting. Like neither side ever really, like, talks. so the Democrats are talking about, Garland doesn't talk about this, but he just said that, period, on Garland. But forward, uh, the... The, like the Democrats are focusing on rushing, hacking and propaganda, which is not the problem. I think there were some some uh, vote flipping shenanigans in a, in a couple of critical Trump districts. I think that that should be investigated. And it was written about in some really obscure. Uh, well, maybe it's not obscure, but Richard Sharnan's blog mentioned it kind of in passing. So it's out there. It's documented. There's a smoking gun there that should be investigated by these people and reported on. And and likewise, the illegal immigrant thing. Uh, I have known so many illegal immigrants in California. The DMV. Ineligible to vote. And that is just a true fact. <laughs> so the millions of illegal immigrants vote. That is just plain true. And for every mainstream media thing to say that's, you know, just dismiss it. Why isn't the right just proving it? You know, the only got, place I saw any kind of evidence was Infowars, which I skipped past because it's. I think it's disinfo. Yeah, well, Infowars is just like any of the other outlets. They provide legit information, and then yeah, they slip in lies or uh, you yep. know, in between them. We got a tweet, not a tweet, but a gab. What's it called on gab when you get a get a thing? Oh, a maybe gab. it's gab. We got a gab. gab. We got a gab from somebody who voted in the sixth district. Did you see this? Really? No, yeah. I didn't. Is it, it from KB? Was, 
Yes, and she said – here, I'll read it. She said she went to vote in the 6th District today, and a woman came in behind me and told me the poll worker – and told the poll worker that she had left her ID at a store and coming about 20 minutes away. They asked for another government-issued ID, which she did not have, so they offered her another option, which sounded like paper ballots mail-in. I couldn't quite hear, and she said, should I go back and ask? I don't know if she went back and asked or not, but that sounds, you know, they were trying to find another way for this person to vote. Well, Karen Handel's the one who brought voter ID to Georgia. And there is no voter ID in California, by the way. So like all those illegals, there is no ID. I mean, even though they they would have the driver's license, I think you can get a driver's license if you're illegal out there. It's so crazy. But yeah. uh, Karen Handel was responsible. I think that was her only like legitimate victory was did you see that that youtube video i posted i tweeted it was uh saying that voter id laws are racist is racist yes i saw that and they they go around in harlem and they're like could you do you have an id (laughs) every single person like what what are you some kind of jerk like of course i have an id (laughs) are you sure can you you figure out how to go to DMV. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, do you think it's harder for black people to get IDs? And it was like, what do you mean? Like fill out the forms, you know, just, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. So I, I absolutely, so the voter ID thing is so stupid. What is wrong with having, anyway, whatever. So I don't like Karen Handel. I don't like Asa probably even more, but I, but I think that it was a fine thing for her to do. And I and so maybe they were working with it. I I would be surprised if I would be surprised if there if there were funny business at that level in Georgia right now. They I think there's plenty you of funny business. But I would be surprised. Be. You wouldn't be. I I do I think it it would be hard to actually cast a vote if you did not have an ID. I think it would be difficult. I I maybe will engage with JB and see if she got to the bottom of it. Yeah. Who knows. So do you want to hear Ossoff's short little concession speech that he gave? Yes. I was so burnt out by then. I did not listen to it. I, I, I wasn't going to listen to it, but I finally just decided to. And then it, it, this, do you remember, obviously you remember Obama's speech at the, you know, the DNC that kind of launched him, launched his presidential campaign, right? Why? You do remember Barack Obama's speech at the DNC. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Sorry, I, I missed that you said Obama. Oh, absolutely. I remember that. I remember right. people like going bananas. I almost think that was racist, too. They were going bananas. They're like, this guy is so articulate. Everything. I was like, what? Right. Well, why are you so shocked that a politician can can read a teleprompter? Like, what is your problem? You know? Yeah. And I remember being like, I don't get the thrill of this guy, but of course. This is awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is, and they go bananas here too. This is not. This is Ossoff's version of that. I understand what you're saying. Oh, that's fantastic. And and, because I did see a quote where he said, "This is the start of something bigger." Did I just steal your punchline? I'm sorry. No, yeah, just here it is. And really, what? Yeah, he does (laughs) say stuff like that. But what bothers me the most about it is he's tried to sound and speak like Obama the whole time. But in this clip, uh, his Obama, so he, he is trying so hard to nail his Obama impersonation. Even Was he actually wearing like big ears? He's in blackface like while he's on. 
I'm sorry. Uh, that's insensitive, probably. Terrible joke. I think you can't running the uh, last. Um, you went too far. You I go too, too far. far. <laughs> it's just so disgusting how how badly he's trying to mim- even in his like. Yes. You know how Obama like the crowd will interject and Obama will go. It's true. Yes. It's true. He'll like he'll like validate. You know, but you know what's funny is that the the cadence that Ossoff practices copies of Obama to me is a flaw of Obama's. It's actually the one part of him that is not polished. Is that stilted? Speech now it's, it's iconic, so it. yeah, it makes him human. Yeah, so that's why you're like what we were talking about last time about how accessing the stereotype is a simple and effective way to trigger, you know, to to associate certain thoughts and feelings to what this new experience. Yeah, right. So, so the fact that it's now an iconic cadence work is going to work for this guy, but the funny part is it's actually kind of annoying. <laughs> He's better when he doesn't do it. Yeah, here it is. Oh, wait, hold on. I thought it was. All right, there we go. For people across the country. <laughs> right off the and bat. For people around the world. This small community in Georgia, which has become the epicenter of politics, sometimes to my chagrin, <laughs> for months now. And it's had nothing to do with me. <laughs> it never oh my works. gosh, this is crazy. It's about you. You. It's about it's about <laughs> an extraordinary community at an extraordinary moment in history. The first opportunity in this country to make a statement about values that can still unite people. At a time when politics has been dominated by fear and hatred and scapegoating and division, this community stood up. Women in this community stood up. It's like saying 9 11, everybody stands up. Exactly, Lois, family guy. And you picked this campaign up and you picked me up. And you now, did you notice there while they were cheering? They're going, wow. He goes, you did. You did. That is totally a oh, Barack Obama it. thing. I'll take it back. There was so it. much Barack Obama. That's crazy. There was so much Barack Obama. Are you finished? There... Oh, wait, hold on. campaign up and you picked me oh. up and you picked Alicia up and you carried us on your shoulders. Oh, I can't listen to it anymore. How much more That's is the it? end of it. <laughs> Make it stop. I can't. I'm he literally said, throwing up in my mouth. It, it, it's even the way he's like trying to move oh. when you watch it. He's just trying to mimic Barack Obama. And he says the comment about values that can still unite people. And everybody just goes crazy. But, but he said absolutely. Values. Like name one. Would well, yeah, someone screaming mean? in the crowd name a value? Women. Value, yeah. Women. Women. That's Women. Value. <laughs> Women. Wait, do you ever see like Pygmalion or My Fair Lady or even Trading Places? Do you know what those what I know what Trading Places is with Eddie Murphy? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love Eddie Murphy. And I love Charlie Murphy. Uh, anyway. That 
that thing, the premise of that all is that you can take anyone and just craft them into whatever it is you're trying to do. So it's, or like, uh, I I never watched American Idol, but I think that Kelly Clarkson, who was the first American winner, and I think she was a Ron Paul supporter, which is when people started to distance, I think, but she wrote a little expose or whatever about her boss, you know, whatever, some big, big time producer. I just forget his name. I'm sure you've heard his name. And he, she, she was writing what like a jerk he was because she was like telling him about her like needs and desires. And he was just obviously it had it. And he said, you don't understand, honey. Do I could crush you. You're nothing. There's nothing to you. If it weren't for me and I could put somebody else on my hand and they, they would be my sock puppet. So something like that, you know? And she was just like, what a jerk. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a hundred percent true. Like I'm not dissing her. I'm sure she's very talented, whatever. But so to see this guy and he's actually not very good at it at all. Like Obama actually was great at it and he was groomed for it since he was a kid given that his stepfather was a really deep state guy and his mother was super deep state too. So he was, and his grandfather. So he was surely groomed from a very early age. For this. I guess Ossoff was more or less groomed from an early age, but his, he's not very good at it, but you can just, you can see the strings, you can see the hand up his back, you know, and I can't help but think of that hand as his dad, just after listening to you <laughs> for yeah. a while. But, you know, he's so stilted, whatever. It's just like we're, we're watching him take an acting lesson. I agree. I think that's what I think this was probably kind of like an audition for him. And like yes. you had you had the question of will he run in 2018? I, I think probably maybe it'll be in the district he actually lives in. Who knows? That's what I think. Yeah, and also when you go back to the Kasim Reed thing and um, the guy in Detroit, like I think they have a bunch of people in the wing. So if he really couldn't make yes, like a test run, if he really couldn't do it, there's, I'm sure somebody else, you know, I, I feel like his father must've really pulled some strings or offered some money saying, Hey, look, it, it, you know, a sock monkey could do it or whatever. I it'll just let my son do it and I'll give you half the money, you know, because somebody's yeah. going to do it here. Somebody made a dollar so, bet because, in the bathroom. Yes. Yes. With Randolph. And Mortimer. Yeah, Mortimer. Uh, so I think he probably, you know, I don't know if he was destined to win or lose. When when the Republicans swept all these special elections, granted, they were all seats that had been held by Republicans. So, but it, it gives some legs to this Trump psyop, in my opinion. Like, there's, they're going to try to get a little more divisiveness out of it. And, and that only works if there's hope. So yeah. they're going to give Trump another, you know, the next scene has to start with a little redemption of Trump or it won't have any any suspense. If you know the game's over, you're not going to watch through the next season. Right. Yeah. That's the way they're framing it. Like, I, I don't know how everybody in that room was going crazy. Like, I mean, they spent 25, they wrangled, $25 you know they million, dollars, you know. But people yeah. are genuinely, like, responding to this stuff because they spend $25 million on it. But they lost after spending $25 million on it, yet, yet. And why would they put $25 million under to a, a, a neophyte 
absentee putts, you know, like I just an annoying, that's probably a dirty word, but uh, a, an annoying person, let's say. Why would they put that much money in such an important race to a totally unproven, uncharismatic, although my sister thought he was cute. So maybe it really, it was for, you know, the cuteness factor. It's and because of the familiarity. Yeah. They show them a lot over and over again. You start to. Yes, yes, yes. I do think I, I'm going to take back something I said earlier that there's like a bunch of them. And if he works, he works. I think he's, he, his father, now that I listen to you, is so connected all the way back to like the CFR stuff. Council on Foreign Relations stuff that he is going to be, he's tapped. He's not just one of a pool of kids they're pulling out of the bureaucratic um, pool. He's, right. He's got, yeah, he's. His career has been calculated to be yes. set up for this. You know, his he's whole, the political arm of his the father's. The filmmaker line is just unbelievable. Like, I went back and looked at the other people who are associated with that company that he, he bought a title from, as, as yes. all he did. And to believe that this guy is in charge of these, all these people that are associated with a company are career documentary filmmakers who have won multiple awards doing invest like they have all actually done this they're a lot older they're older than him they're they're successful yeah. they, they had awards long before he even was involved in this place to think that somebody with no experience in filmmaking no education in filmmaking no journal no journalistic um you know education or training other than maybe writing an article while he was at georgetown to think that someone like that is going to be asked to be the boss of these uh, career people who have already established themselves is absurd. Yeah. What were his credentials that put him in that position? Nothing. He didn't have any credentials. He had, uh, the credentials were, hey, my grandfather gave me like $20 billion. We can fund yeah. your, your thing if you give <laughs> oh, me yeah, time. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I always forget that part. I just yeah. – I think I can't get my mind around it. All right. So <laughs> – I want to yeah, I do think he'll be back. I, th I think he'll be back. And, you know, I don't know why they spent a whole bunch of money. Regardless of whether he won or not, what they have done is they are going to be able to – because I already got an email that last night from Indivisible saying how much of a win the whole Ossoff thing was and how it needs to continue to fuel this resistance movement. So I think they partly accomplished their purpose as, as, as long as they can – deliver this message to the resistance movement and the resistance movement will believe it. If they believe that, that, that this is a win for the yeah, Democrats yeah. and they will continue to protest and continue till 2018, which they're trying to, yeah. they're trying to carry this resistance movement on for like a year and a half. It'll hold another year and a half to go and maybe they'll yeah. do it. I, I do think though, kind of an answer to this question, he did draw the Obama parallels. Maybe that's part of the answer that you did point out earlier was that he's an empty suit. I mean, Obama was truly a blank slate. They did not even let him vote in the Senate. Like there was nothing, <laughs> nothing to read. Remember that? He had, I think, no votes. Right. When he ran the first time for president. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Um, so it's possible that, that that's a draw, you know, a uh, something appealing about Oslo. That, I, you know, that's that's a good point. He doesn't have any votes in the Senate. I know you made that any, point. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't. Yeah, I called him an empty suit. But the thing about Obama not having any votes, I didn't make that connection. Ossoff is never he, he didn't vote in 2012. He didn't vote yesterday. 
Yeah, he didn't vote yesterday. I don't know if he's ever voted. <laughs> Maybe he has. I have no idea. Uh, let me play this clip. I just want to play this clip because I think I pointed it. I think I said this in text to you maybe, or maybe I tweeted it yesterday prior to the election. I said, it's raining. Now the, the media on the left yes. can blame the rain if Ossoff loses. So let me play this clip. Yes, you did. If there was a turnout effect from the bad weather today in the district, does that have any partisan implications that you could foresee in terms of what was expected for same-day election day voting? Yeah. Uh, in here. So this guy must be not only a meteorologist, but, but he is a political expert on the demographics in Georgia. <laughs> Well, and potentially, it all depends. Where this is anecdotal, and we'll see when the results come in. There have been anecdotal reports, and I've even heard some Republicans saying this, that the turnout in DeKalb, this is the Democratic card. This is where, if you're Asaf, you want to be getting 60, 61, 62 percent of the vote. You're expecting that. He got 60 percent in DeKalb. In the early vote, there have been some anecdotal reports, the turnout here in DeKalb, less than expected. That could be a same day. You could attribute that to anything. We'll see if that turns out. But She goes, ah. Ah, yeah, that must yes. be it. Ah. Because young people, it's so much harder for millennials to get out in the rain than the 65-year-old or 75-year-old people who are voting for Karen Handel. Exactly. It's true. Right. I mean, that narrative works against them. Yeah, and at the end of it, he said something. He framed it to – they framed it to where the county that Ossoff was supposed to get the most votes in is is where there's lower turnout and the county where Handel is going to get the most votes. There's a higher turnout, and they tried to attribute that to rain. It's the stupidest thing. They, know, you know, they don't do the – they don't sit down. Because it's only and, raining and the one – Yeah, right. They must have been just flood <laughs> rains, trees falling. That God really didn't want Ossoff voters coming out in DeKalb County. Did you see the tweet from uh, – Goxram said he showed a map and it basically broke out that renters voted for Ossoff and yeah. homeowners voted for Handel. Oh, I saw and that. I'll tell I, you, I, when th- people, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, when people, yeah, when people like Ossoff say, "I'm going to bring a bunch of jobs," and when I moved from LA to Atlanta, I was very happy to get away from film crews in every school parking lot. I paid to go take my kids to preschool and these jerks would stand there and be like, oh, you can't come in today. Excuse, keep moving, lady. It's like, keep moving, lady. You are on a piece of property that I am paying to keep going and you're yelling at me. And I didn't get like a tuition rebate at the end of the day. You know, this is how it was in LA. I loved coming to Atlanta and not having that experience anymore. Now I have that experience again. Right. Because yeah. the RIP policy promotes Georgia film, whatever. It's not like I'm getting money back with taxes. People come in and take those jobs. They And it's it's taking the tax money of the taxpayer base and transferring it to these companies, which are out-of-state companies a lot of times. I really don't know how the rules work. I shouldn't get too deep into that topic if I'm not if I into the research. But I will say this. It's no, it does not appeal to me at all when someone says, I will bring in a bunch of tech jobs or a bunch of film jobs into your nice little town and build some housing that renters can live in and pay much less property taxes than you do. It just doesn't appeal to me. And it changes the culture, which is, I'm sure it's like mixed real Atlantans cringe that i appreciate the culture and don't don't want all those uppity new yorkers coming down that's not true i'm happy to have a melting pot 
but I don't, it doesn't appeal to me to tell me you're going to bring 15,000 millennials into my community. That does not appeal to me. So I would think that homeowners would be of that ilk. And this guy was saying how he's going to bring this. Does that make me sound like, um, I, I'm afraid I sound sno- snooty. Is that a snooty attitude or is it reasonable to, to like a sleepy, a sleepy little bedroom community? Well, I mean, it I, just not shows everybody my wants to be in the middle of the, of an artistic community. That's for downtown. I did when I was young, but now I have kids, you know, I can't, I can't live like that. Right. But Kasim Reed's trying to, Kasim Reed's doing that anyway. (laughs) Oh yeah. He's turning everything into the Truman Show. Yeah. Kasim Reed, you're right. Like the trolleys and the greenways and, um, oh my gosh. And the article that you sent me that I'd already tweeted that like everybody sent me about, there was a whole pullout of the Wall Street Journal. I think it was today. I read it online yesterday, but of driverless cars and all that stuff coming down and that we will not own cars anymore. Our kids won't know how to drive. That I've been, everybody sent it to me because I've been talking about that for years and I have to return to this issue. The Uber guy, Kalanick, I think his name is, finally resigned today. And I have to tell you, I looked into the accident of his parents Okay, so do you remember what I'm talking about from last week? Yes, the boating accident that his parents had. Right, so the Uber guy, founder, CEO, I don't know if he's actually founder, maybe he was, but he's a big, they could not push him out. He's such a big shareholder. They kept pushing him out. There were so many scandals coming in, like, oh, he's a friend of Trump's. He's uh, uh, the culture of sexual harassment. Um, they underpaid drivers. Uh, all his people are leaving him. Oh, his big guy stole software from Google, which was a huge investor in Uber, by the way. All this stuff, just trying to get rid of this guy, and he would not resign. He took a leave of absence finally a week or two ago because his mother died in a boating accident and his father was seriously injured. So I told you last time, I immediately looked up, did he have a wife and or kids? Because... I'll completely dismiss that there was anything nefarious going on here if they targeted someone once removed from his closest family, but it was his closest family. They were lifelong boaters. They were from there. I think they were from, it was in a placid lake in Fresno. His brother is a firefighter in Fresno. So I assume they were there their whole lives. It was, so there, I don't think there was any suggestion. There was alcohol involved. There was no, um, I would think that 71 and 75 year old people are not speeding through this lake. It was there a lake they were absolutely familiar with. The debris wasn't found for hours. So there was nobody around. It wasn't crowded, nothing. And uh, they said it, it, it must've hit a rock that they would investigate. There was no further reporting on the investigation at all. So I, it's a foul play, but there's no explanation for this accident at all. And none of the circumstances you would expect drugs or alcohol, um, speed, youth, unfamiliar territory, uh, crowds, none of that stuff existed. There's no uh, explanation. That's interesting. Do you still think it's less than 1% or can we say it's a 1% chance there was funny business? I, I can give you 1% chance. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, that's always I'm going to call that a victory. <laughs> I'm going to call that like a yeah. Democrat style victory. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> 1%, yeah. 
one percent. Telling me there's a chance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just when there's no information on these these accidents, it's you know I don't it's it's strange. No, for the for purposes of our show, I try to avoid leaping to conclusions from a million <laughs> miles away without doing any research whatsoever. And then, of course, I go and look for the things that support my initial reaction. Yeah. Um. But so I know there's like a huge fallacies and all of that. But uh, I'm just throwing it out there for I just I notice these connections. Something to keep an eye on. Fault me if you don't like it. I'm happy to to take polite criticism, and I will think hard about it. But I just thought that was something that was a little a little fishy. But can I? We kind of got far away from it, but you were talking earlier about Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays and and these things. I read an article today in the journal of Holman Jenkins, I think his name is. And I'm telling you, this guy referred to so many books and articles that you have turned us all on to that I thought maybe he'd been listening to the propaganda report, which I'm positive he hasn't. Or you uh, came up with a great idea, an idea I absolutely love. I do book reviews, but you do. So if you go to my website, monicapresha.com, I have a handful of book reviews, not nothing earth shattering and, and a lot of book recommendations. But what you did, I thought was very clever and I want to expand on it. All right. It's this, it's this tab of bookshelf. You call it the bookshelf and it's, and it's the list of all the books that we talk about on the air, which I absolutely love that idea. Uh, easy reference because we put them in the show notes, but it, it's nice to peruse and um, really understand what we're talking about. But I, I would like, so, so this, I think every top to bottom, which we should link to the show notes, it referred to articles and books. I'm certain they, that you had turned me on to all of that already for his own propaganda purposes, but what, what can you do? So I want to add to that. I want to add to your bookshelf. I I have an actual bookshelf at home with <laughs> probably 200 books on it. I have a wish list on Amazon. I have Goodreads, like to read books I need to read. I have books that I have accumulated physically or just the titles of in all of these real deep history stuff that I've read that you've turned me on to just, uh, I haven't read most of them. I mean, I've read dozens of them, but I haven't read hundreds of them, but I thought we could share, and you probably have lists like that too. We can share lists like that. People can look at them. Maybe it's stuff that's on point, comment on it. So they can say, Oh yeah, I read that one. It's good. I read that one. That's actually disinfo beware that kind of thing I think might be a fun and interesting and valuable resource. So let's, maybe we should try to do that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of books that I haven't had a chance to read through yet that, um, I, I I'd love to put up there and, uh, yeah, it's, we can only read so much at one time, you know, so it's, Oh my gosh. I almost <laughs> wonder if there's some way we can like wiki it. So not wiki it, like make it like a wiki thing. So if people have read the books, maybe if people comment on the bottom, Right. Uh, I'm happy to cut and paste or copy some of those comments up to where the titles are right, to help yeah, us. Because yeah. that's what I do. Like on Goodreads, I have just one paragraph on, I think it's literally 350 books I've read. I just write like a quick paragraph. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, that, and that's helpful. So let's let's work on that. But if people want to check out what you've put up there so far, it, I think it's a pretty comprehensive list of the really interesting, important 
books that we've talked about, you know, that have kind of broad implications. Right. Like, 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 uh, like they do on, uh, on Amazon, people who read the books, give their little four stars and give reviews. We can you know, try to set it up where we have uh, listener reviews and we'll give them credit for yeah, their review. Yeah. And yeah, that's cute. Yeah. Especially for stuff we haven't read. So what else you got? Yeah, I want to, we were going to save this for another, but since we're on the topic, I want to read a couple. I want to read a couple passages to you and just get your reaction from one of uh, one of Bernays's early books and how it relates, how you think it relates to what you see today. Okay. You want to do that? Does that sound like fun? Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, I, it does sound like fun. I have to warn you that uh, I'm not sure I'm sharp enough to, on the fly, connect all the dots an hour and a half into this podcast well, but i am absolutely happy to try okay well let's do it then might, might as well um it's definitely going to be fun and uh and yes. maybe we'll follow up on it over time as i in the context of this framework and then we can kind of fill that in uh over the over the weeks to come yeah I'm this ready. book that I'm reading from is called Crystallizing Public Opinion. And it's basically, it's a precursor to his book, Propaganda. It's it, He goes through this book and he talks about a lot of the knowledge that the propagandist, or he calls it the Public, public Relations Council. He uses the two terms interchangeably. W- what they need to know and understand in order to manipulate the public without the public realizing it. And what year was this? Sorry, did this I miss one that? This was in 1923, I believe. And, yes. and this was? Edward Bernays, 1923. Right. One that we touch on a lot. The average citizen is the world's most efficient censor. His own mind is the greatest barrier between him and the facts. His logic-proof compartments, his own absolutism are obstacles which prevent him from seeing in terms of experience and thought rather than in terms of group reaction. Wait, can I talk? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's the end of the call. I have something to say. That's – I really – I thought they imposed that from the outside, that manufacturing consent of Noam Chomsky, manufacturing advocacy is a coin I term, a term I coined. But can you read it again? You can read it faster, but just. uh, Yeah. The average citizen is the world's most efficient censor. His own mind is the greatest barrier between him and the facts. His own logic-proof compartments, his own absolutism are the, obst- are the obstacles which prevent him from, from seeing in terms of experience and thought rather than in terms of group reaction. Okay, yes. I remember I was friends with a guy in law school who – there were a lot of smart people there. Like that's the thing. I talk about these Ivy League schools, brainwashing people, whatever, but – they do set the bar pretty high of who they let in, and you can really get exposed to people who think obviously totally different from me. Like there's a lot of political pragmatism and ambition and stuff like that. But uh, but you could really pick some stuff up, like uh, just from several different people. I would pick this like really different insight into how to think or look at the world. And this one guy would 
he would make, you know, his, it was like, he was a tinkerer kind of, and he would just say, all right, look at this thing. How does it work? And you'd have to think about it. It's like, if, if you had to fix it, what would you do? Yeah. Another thing he used to do is say, how much should this cost? How much should it cost? And I'd be like, I don't know how much it should cost. I don't know what it is. Well, just look at it. You know, how sophisticated is it? What is it made of? How hard is it to put together? And give me a number. And after that, I would walk around and just look at the world and be like, oh, I can really understand the world if I just trust, if I just observe it. And that's when I had the insight that psychology and sociology, which at one time, I think 100 years ago or so, I love William Graham Sumner and Christopher Dawson. Um, you know, I love some of these older psychologists and sociologists. They told, I, I felt like sociology and psychology were corrupted or used or exploited in order to get people to disconnect their own observations from what they think, you know, how they think things really work. But what you're telling me, unless he's just saying this sophisticatedly as if, it's in you already. I'm not doing it to you, but he's really doing it to you because his uncle was Sigmund Freud. But he, but uh, what I'm hearing from this passage is we're doing it to ourselves. Like we're, we are not allowing ourselves to really observe the, the, our own experiences because they don't fit into the boxes we want to believe in. Yeah, that's, that's partially true that, they, they exploit the existing stereotypes that we all have in our mind that we formed throughout our lifetimes based on our individual – based on the groups that we're a part of. Like the Republican has a specific stereotype of a liberal when you know liberal terms are triggered, and, and that stereotype of a liberal is different from the liberal stereotype of a liberal and vice versa when it comes to how the liberals oh, are conservatives. Oh, that's so genius. So, so, yes, well, isn't, didn't Freud say – okay, yeah. Yeah, they leverage the existing stereotypes and they they link them using uh, uh, you know vague but emotional value based language, kind of like Ossoff was using. He just said values. Actually, he didn't even pick values. He was so general. He just <laughs> said values of unity, and everybody went crazy. And they know they know the, especially today because they have so much data on us. They know the stereotypes that the individual groups have of other groups and they use those stereotypes to divide and conquer and to trigger emotional responses in the group because stereotypes are they're, they're we're all a part of a bunch of different groups you know even when we're alone when we're on twitter and facebook yes we're still reacting as a group you know so right so they trigger up. those stereotypes that okay, are already here, there listen what you when you were saying that you said that there's it's so genius you were saying there's what liberals think liberals are, what Republicans think or what conservatives think liberals are, whatever. So there's really four stereotypes and the two stereotypes. And it was Sigmund Freud, I think, who said, this is where it comes from. So interesting. Who said, when two people make love, there are four people in the bed. It's the person you person you think you are it's either yeah the person you think you are and the person you are or the person the other person thinks you are i can't remember which you know who it is but it's it's who you think you are 
who they who think, they think you, are. you are. Yeah. Who you think they are and who they think they are. But like, yeah. I, I don't know if there was like no actual person in any of those four people, right. but I want to ask you, if you wouldn't mind giving me your opinion on the exact specific thing I'm grappling with here. Is it they, is it true? So you're saying the reason we don't observe what's around us is because we have these boxes formed. Is that just your basic social conditioning from youth? It's just, it's just the boxes we form. We have to, we have to categorize things. It's like a developmental thing. You have to we categorize have to. things. You yeah, have we, to generalize. It's uh, stereotypes are shortcuts in thinking. We, we, there's so much information. Right, and they manipulate we, those. It's right. clear they manipulate those from very young ages. And I believe there were a lot of experiments on little kids and stuff in Russia right before the folk music and rock and roll and stuff from the 60s was brought here. And it and that dovetails to me with this idea that Russia was like a experiment, the Soviet Union. It was almost like they experimented over there with things and then brought them here because there was no, um, you know, protections. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> there's a lot. I don't want to go down every path. Right. Although. Yeah. So here's, here's uh, Bernays quote from this book on stereotypes is psychological habits or stereotypes as Walter Littman termed them are shorthand by which human effort is minimized. They are so clearly and commonly understood that everyone will immediately respond to the mention of the stereotype within his personal experience. The word capitalist or boy scout brings out definitive images to the hearer. These images are more comprehensible than detailed descriptions. Chorus girl, woman lawyer, politician, detective, financier are clean-cut concepts and capable of definition. We all have stereotypes which minimize not only our thinking habits but also the ordinary routine of life. That does go right to what we were talking about in the last show. Yeah. So there was a big effort about in this book, Peace, uh, from the wonderful people who brought you Korea and Vietnam. And it talks about how the UN's number one thing was to, and this was back like right after the UN was formed, that their number one weapon was to like deracinate. I don't know if that, I think that's a racist word in itself. Like to get rid of the concept of race, even though it was a valid concept. And you could even say race as nationality or ethnicity or anything like that. I mean, you know, in Africa <laughs> surely is something very different from Native Americans, you know, and to to not allow people to use those terms or think in those ways was a big thing with them. They were they were attacking that. However, they would never give up such a powerful instrument as what you just described, and they haven't because now you have deplorables, you have alt right. You have snowflakes. You have not. It's all there. Oh, they yeah. have, however, you know, they do cut some out. Maybe that were unfair or negative or whatever. I mean, I, I think we're going to have, again, like, I think we're going to have, I'm going to have to carry this around with me a little bit and try to observe yeah, the I mean, world and fit it into those boxes. Right. <laughs> you know, try to understand the scaffolding. Well, what they the do is they they exploit the the stereotypes that trigger those powerful emotional responses in the group so that people cannot so it short circuits their critical thinking as we talked about so that 
people always see through those simplicities and by getting them to respond through the group, they, they, it takes away that reasonable conversation that is necessary for, you know, com- coming to a better answer or to even have. And how does that fold into how powerful race is in politics? Absolutely. So I thought Obama might, might let that go. They might like put that to rest, help us to rest. They but will. instead he exacerbated it. Yes. It's such what a powerful. they'd never do. But how does that fold into this? Is that a totally separate issue? The the political power of identity groups is is that different from the stereotype thing? Because it it seems connected, and maybe I'm just being. Oh, I think it's totally connected to it. Uh, they, yeah, that's the, the 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 racial stereotypes that people have, and they and they do the stereotypes. We do we're going to form them anyway because we have to have short. We have to have these automatic, you know we can't analyze whether the floor is actually beneath us every single day or not. We'd never go anywhere. So we have to have these shortcuts in thinking where uh, we see something that looks like a floor. So we just, we, we yeah. automatically react as though it's going to act like a floor. And the same thing with, with racial stereotypes, they can create these racial stereotypes through the media in our minds and then they can either exploit events that happen or, or trigger other events yeah. that happen. And this black right. versus blue thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They totally want people, they can use that in so many powerful ways, as you've pointed out many times through the media. So they have no reason to try and uh, diffuse that. And you're right, Obama played into it. Could have, and he didn't. And so, but what they do with that is they... They use the race issue as a weapon for sure, the identity thing in that, but they always, I've observed this before, either cut off videos and make it ambiguous, the art of ambiguity, or they take situations, the guy who got shot was doing something that a normal person might think, uh, like your normal like soccer mom driving home isn't going to say to the cop, oh, I'm just going to get my gun. <laughs> you know, you're never going to say that. You, you just don't even have the gun. So yeah. they play into stereotypes, even these stories, whether they just uh, pick stories that play into that. There's that ambiguity only works because I, and I've noticed this, but this was really bringing it together for me. The stereotype now, when you look at these stories of like a black guy getting shot by a cop, 50% of the people can look at it one way and 50% of the people can look at it the other way. It's clearly because of what you think. You're like, well, I, uh, you know, that's an inner city black guy with a knife. I can understand why the cop would be. And then if somebody else would say, there's you know, the four the perceptions, like you said, with Floyd. Yeah, the cop on the beat in in the inner city knows this guy. He's just selling cigarettes. He was going. It wasn't even a knife, you know. What, what is he, an idiot? You know. So yes. Right. Same yeah. Way. But it's it's the four different perceptions, like you said, with Freud. It's how the cop perceives. It's how the the or the cop perceives himself. How. Yeah. Uh, how how the the inner city uh, uh black black kid might perceive the cop how he perceives himself and vice versa so it's yes. these conflicting perceptions that have large that have a lot of times been enhanced and and clarity has been brought to them in the that's the thing about these stereotypes if there's any confusion or complexity about um certain stereotypes that they they want to exploit through propaganda the media will 
make them crystal clear. They, they will bring the yes. – Bernays talks about this a lot. They will bring the fuzziness into clarity and tell them what to think, crystallizing these stereotypes and defining the groups so that they can you know, pit them against each other. In fact, here's, a, here's another quote from the book that says that a lot better. And Bernays is actually quoting Littman here, that other book, that uh, Public Opinion, that I talk about. But he says, Mr. Littman finds that the stereotypes at the center – at the center of the, Mr. Littman finds that the stereotypes at the center of the code by which various sections of the public live largely determine what group of facts we shall see and in what light we shall see them. That's why a capitalist sees one set of facts and certain aspects of human nature literally sees them and his socialist opponent another set of facts and other aspects and why each regards the other as unreasonable or perverse when the real difference between them is in that of perception the difference is imposed by the, the differences is imposed by the difference between the capitalist and the social pattern and the socialist pattern of stereotypes i would i have to <clears throat> i have two comments one is i i i've always wanted to see a real study which we will never see of if liberals are right brained like by far and conservatives are left-brained by far because it's that I've talked about before fiscal insecurity versus physical insecurity. It's that perception thing. Maybe it's, it's a, I don't know because it's not a question of IQ. I don't think it's just this, it's this, I just feel like that left right thing is, is just, they're just two different brain patterns and they exploit those. Then I want to say one thing about the stereotype that doesn't fit. Bill Cosby is demonized by the media and Michael Jackson was not. Michael Jackson was absolutely no threat to the stereotype, whereas Bill Cosby is a successful black guy who speaks in the, you know, American high dialect, you know, like high German, the American high dialect uh, he's, he's not, um, he's not like your token black guy that the white community loves to trot around cause he's conservative, you know, he's not, um, he was an advocate for some real, uh, I mean, no wisdom for that would help the black community not be exploited by the political forces. I think, I mean, I never made a study of Bill Cosby, but I feel like he had to be destroyed because he would have had power and influence in a way that didn't serve the agenda that is served by very specific stereotypes. Yeah. And that's, you know, don't get me wrong. Bill Cosby admitted that he, you know, was drugging people. <laughs> yeah. But what did Michael Jackson do? You know, the but, FBI no, my, supposedly but, suppressed yeah, evidence yeah. against him. I'm not talking about guilt or innocence. Let's say they're both guilty. Right. No, I know. Why was Michael just, Jackson, I'm you know, he, went, he was continuing was to do it. Yeah, but Cosby isn't continuing to do it. Nobody's even accusing him of continuing to do it. But Michael Jackson was enabled to continue to do it. Right. And that's what I'm saying is you're right. I'm agreeing with you. That's why because he yes, shatters. And you're right. Time. I shouldn't say that these people are innocent. I'm not saying that. Yeah, I just wanted to qualify that I'm not uh, yes, siding with Cosby. I'm just saying that I'm agreeing with you that they they don't let him get away with it because he doesn't fit the stereotype that supports the the agenda. Yes, and for me, I really should like come come full circle on that. My always my observation with Bill Cosby 
I wasn't, I actually am not, I, I might be misinterpreted as thinking like he's a good role model and example. I am absolutely not saying that. I think he, he, his political, the free speech that he was exercising was having an undesirable political impact. Yeah. And that is why he was targeted. I think it was a way, it is a way of persecuting people for political reasons, taking their free speech away, their rights of free speech, which is why in the beginning when we were talking about the due process issue of making, not being able to face your accuser or whatever, it makes these kind of setups where they will take you out for purely political motives and they can conjure up. I mean, everybody's guilty of something when there are a million crimes on the books or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to be able to find something. Mm-hmm. So I, I just feel like that's that's actually in action. I mean, I think they changed laws of statute of limitations so he could be prosecuted for crimes that were just too old. Yeah, I was curious about that. That's that's highly that's that's called like an ex post facto law, and it's an absolute violation of the most fundamental legal principle that if the law is X and you're relying on it, uh, you know, you can't change it and then retroactively. <sighs> right. Yeah. All right. I have one more quote that that speaks okay. to all of them. And then uh, I guess we can wrap it up. Unless you, yes, unless you're you really have- taxing my little uh, brain cells here. <laughs> this one is from Public Opinion. I switched books. This is Walter Littman. Um, he says, and he's talking about stereotypes. He says, for the most part, we do not first see and then define. We define first and then and then we see. And the great blooming, buzzing confusion of the outer world, we pick out what our culture has already defined for us, and we tend to perceive that which we have picked out in the form stereotyped for us by our culture. That's a heavy one. You lost me. (laughs) (laughs) You guys like start over or summarize. You got to start over. You can do it fast. I got like the impression in my brain. No, this is a heavy one. I have to read this one all the time. For the most part, we do not first see and then define what we see. We define first and then we see it. Yes. In the great blooming, buzzing confusion of the outer world, we pick out what our culture has already defined for us, and then we tend to perceive that which we have picked out in the form stereotyped for us by our culture. So it's kind of vague and confusing, but what our culture puts up. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of like data mining, actually. There's more to it than that. See, that's a great relation to, to this quote to today is data mining. Is is They're going to pick out and tell us what's important and tell us how to perceive it. Yes, and that is why that like social conditioning from infanthood is so important because right. – They want forming... forming stereotypes in our mind is what they want. Right. I start to wonder, like, I know, I know they, every, everything that we read, you and I, is basically accessible on the open internet. And I know they can scrub that stuff. Yeah. I, I wonder, I, I always feel like with every layer of the onion that I peel, a, a more sophisticated, pre-set, you know, pre-fab set of boxes. Yeah. You know, I'm saying like the boxes. You find, you, he says you define it first and then you find the thing to put in that box. That's how I'm like, 
yeah, you yeah. Know, distilling what you just said. Yeah, I think so. And I'm just saying my boxes, that's why like the alt-right, um, that's why I don't like to go down the Israel, talk about the politics of Israel, because there is this huge body of like internet um, or like anti-Israel policy but then also anti-Semitic. So it kind of like mushes it together and it's really like virulent. I don't like to even go to, but it's, you know, it has huge, these things have big, big followings. And I noticed it for a long time. It's when I saw like alt-right stuff emerging kind of um, misogynistic stuff. Like they don't, they like real anti-female stuff, but like stuff that's just tasteful. And, uh, and I, it was weird to me. Like it looked, it was so getting so mainstream. And then, uh, then Trump comes out and it's kind of like stuff, you know, in the campaign, I don't think it does it anymore. Um, and then Hillary came and gave us the deplorables basket and all that stuff. I can't help, but think like even that stuff, that, that layer where that the people who like it are, um, they think they're, cracking the code you know they think they're peeling the onion but it's this stuff that's already packaged so that even if there are true facts in it it's still not thinking really for themselves and i i think i'm another layer down you know from from that level and i'm not even talking like i'm a deeper than alt-right i'm like ultra alt-right i'm not i'm saying just (laughs) like say the surface level you know and then there's another level yeah. That has any anything from alt right to alt left to all that. You know, I'm just talking about I think it's what um Corey, who wrote an article for us called the side stream media, he focuses that it's like on the right, but I think there's it's all over. You know, you could even say like Vox and Vice and all that stuff. Maybe right. Is, you're like, right about the alt right. The, the alt right was that that was that's a great example of what that quote represents right there. It is before Hillary Clinton gave that speech, yeah. the alt right was a fuzzy idea that most of us had never heard of, right? But Hillary Clinton raised it up and made it crystal clear and defined it for the entire country when she gave that speech. And that definition got reinforced over and over again through the media. And then people who were part of it or who wanted to be part of it, they either separated themselves from it or they embraced it and further crystallized what people's opinion of the alt-right is. But, but when she did that, I – that puzzle, I was trying to puzzle through – of where is it all coming from? Because there was a lot of it, you know, like a lot, of, like it was, it was up to the level of, of, um, you know, it was just too much. There's too much production, you know, and you would see like a new YouTube channel come up and all of a sudden it's got 50,000 subscribers. I'm like, this is something up yeah. here, you know? Yeah. So I saw when she said that, I immediately realized that something I had been observing for a couple of years had clearly, I think, was a, a bit of a setup, and uh, and so now I wonder where where am I now? You know, I am. Uh, uh, I mean, I did talk about this last time too. I'm not trying to be narcissistic. I'm really trying to figure out like stuff, but I also talk about this stuff on the mainstream media. You know, I talk about it on WSB. You know, I struggle with that role am i the am i just another layer you know the relief valve there's yeah. another like box oh she thinks the council of foreign relations 
uh, is trying to create a world government and that Rockefeller and Brzezinski and stuff, you know, they're the guys, you know, maybe, maybe it's the, uh, real power structure is like ancient. It's yeah. like the Knights Templar thing. Yeah. You know, maybe it's really, truly ancient and everything that you and I is just another, you know, that they have layers and layers of these boxes to keep more and more sophisticated analysts in like the way we talk about the level of propaganda, like the Atlantic magazines for the intellectuals. Yeah. It seems like they're really going deep, but Uh, yeah, (laughs) you know, and then I'm like, well, you know, I mean, is it, should I, am I making myself crazy now? (laughs) No, I'm totally (laughs) paranoid. It's like a paranoid that I'm, Every time, I think, no, every time I think I figure something out, I, I say, I haven't figured shit out. They just want me no to way. think I figured it out so that I stop looking for the answer. And I raise my yes. fist in the air and scream, bastards. Yeah, and then, oh my gosh, you can go another. Like, I'm, I'm really dancing on the surface here. But when you start going into the freaky stuff, like the fifth dimension stuff and you tap into your spiritual power and you can change the world maybe you know what i'm saying like um there's probably somebody listening right now who's like yes you focus on the stuff in the news that's so stupid when there's a fifth dimension that you could access if you turned your thoughts you know completely away from that now i've kind of gone down a path where i've invested time and in doing this, and I think there's a value in it, and maybe eventually I will get to that truth. But there are people who think the truth is cosmic, you know, that it's and and then I I'm a practicing Catholic. I I get how kind of crazy it seems to think that there's person, you know, a, a God who is a person who you're gonna talk to and know your name and look like you, like it's hard to get my mind around it, but I really don't know the nature of the fifth dimension. So maybe I should focus on that. Maybe this is all a diversion so you don't actually discover the truth about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I I love going into that stuff. I love thinking about I don't know as much about that stuff as I would like to, but I love reading about it and learning about it. I think analyzing the media is in the big picture. I think it's just like any other skill. Like if you're trying to learn how to play basketball – the more you do it, the the more you're going to just be able to make every shot you take, like they do in the NBA. So I think being able to oh, analyze this, okay. do what? So that that's good. So we're getting good at that. But I also think to make progress. So like I want to get you to keep peeling those layers of the onion and not just like run around to different places on the same layer of the right. onion. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I want to keep, keep figuring it out. And I think this is actually not like uh I think it's a, a, like a breakthrough to see it that way. So let's hope that it kind of bears fruit. Yeah. Over time. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm even losing you. <laughs> no, no <laughs> like, I'm okay. totally, everything you're talking about, I've, I'm on the same wavelength. As. Oh, okay. All right. Great. All right. That's all I got today well you've completely i have i've had terrible nights sleep the past couple of nights so uh i hope i did not fall apart no no you're analyze your uh throwing that stuff at me but yeah i know i threw it at you last minute this is some heavy stuff but i thought it'd be uh interesting You, you had good insights you always do it's good thank you very much so that's it. That concludes episode 50 of the Propaganda Report. 
We will, I'm sure we will have plenty more to talk about next week. Thank you, Binkley. It was a pleasure. Thank you. See you later.